Good morning. It is an honor uh, to be with you this morning, to have the chance to stand before you and uh, to share a message from God's Word. Uh, I want to start, before we get into that, and just uh, say thank you. Um, Many of you know the last couple of weeks for our family have not been exactly the way we thought, uh, somewhat with expected surgeries, somewhat with unexpected surgeries. Uh, But we have we are blessed to have many different families uh, through friends, uh, through a great work environment, and through uh, a family here, a church family, uh, of people who have loved us and cared for us and provided for us over the last few weeks as we were just trying to get healthy. And so thank you so much uh, for those of you who pitched in, who called and texted, who shared, who sent a meal, all the different things. Uh, We greatly appreciate being part of a family like this. So thank you. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to be today. Um, As we think about this idea of loving differently, what does it mean to love differently? And I want to kind of narrow in on just a second. As Chris has kind of led us through some various different things over the last few weeks, I want to narrow in and I want us to spend really the majority of our time with a parable that is probably uh, familiar to many of you in Luke chapter 10. So beginning in verse 25, the word of the Lord this morning. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer, do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, but passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds. And having poured oil and wine on them, then he put them on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And so Jesus said, Go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I often tell my students, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing something that you don't know because it's just never been a part of your experience. But once you do know something, right, once, you're, once your eyes have been opened up to, to another way of seeing the world, then to stay in the box that you're already in, well, that is wrong. It's not wrong to not know what you don't know, but it is wrong to not change once you see something differently. My life was forever changed uh, a number of years ago by a friendship that I developed with Miss Pat. 
Now, her real name is Dr. Patricia Brock, but I affectionately call her Miss Pat, and I promise you that is a term of great endearment and of great honor. I have told Miss Pat on a number of occasions that she has changed the life, my own life, and the life of my children, and the life of future generations, because she's helped me to see the world differently than anything I had ever experienced or ever understood up until that point. You see, I grew up in southeast Ohio. Some of you have heard of that. That's one of those states up north, right? Southeast Ohio, right on the banks of the Ohio River in a little town called Belpre, Ohio. There's really no reason for you to ever have heard of Belpre, Ohio. There was about 3,000 people in my town when I grew up. It was a nice, quaint little town, uh, a very safe place to grow up. Now, it is possible that a couple of you have possibly heard of Belpre. You see, Belpre was actually uh, the, second uh, the second settlement in the Northwest Passage. Uh, some of you history buffs may understand that. If you've ever read any of David McAuliffe's works, he's written a bunch of, of great things on, on famous Americans and famous people and the Brooklyn Bridge and all these different things. He wrote a book actually called Pioneers. And if you've read Pioneers, Belpre shows up on a number of occasions in that book. Or if you've ever studied AP U.S. history, there are a few textbooks that will mention Belpre because back 200 years ago, 225 years ago at this point, there was a family who lived right there in, uh, on an island in the Ohio River that is now called Blennerhassett Island because it was their island. And they decided to start a revolution against the United States government, uh, aided by a man that maybe you've heard of before, that guy named Aaron Burr. Yes, that Aaron Burr. So every once in a while, Belpre will show up in places, and maybe you've heard of Belpre, but all of that stuff happened 200 years before I ever moved to Belpre, or before I was ever born. At the time I was associated with Belpre, a, a 20-year history while my parents lived there, uh, we, uh, there were two buildings built in the town while I was there. And uh, we had one police officer. We were the Mayberry of the North, um, and that one police officer handled all the crime easily that took place in my city. Uh, we did have a strong church environment, which was, was very fundamental to my life and, and helped to shape me. But, but it was a quaint little town. Uh, I went to school with people who looked just like me. I lived with people who looked just like me. I was in neighborhoods with people who looked just like me. We weren't trying to be racist or segregated, but honestly, there was one family in town that I could remember who had a different skin color than my own. And so I just didn't know things because I grew up in a place where you just, I wasn't exposed to it. When I moved down south for college, I started to see the world differently and I started to realize that not everything is the same way. But that really started to change when I met Miss Pat. Miss Pat and I were, were colleagues together. We were in the same cohort cohort buddies during our doctoral studies. Uh, and Miss Pat, uh, she and I really shared so little in common outside of the fact that we were in class together. At the time, I was a relatively young, in my early 30s, white male southern minister. She was an older female African-American school teacher administrator. I actually have no idea to this day how old she is. We had various age groups in our cohort with a, a couple of the people who had grandchildren, and all she would ever say is, I'm older than all of you, and we just kind of left it at that. 
But I'll never forget the day we were sitting around and we just happened to be talking about Trayvon Martin. Some of you will remember that story and know that name. And Miss Pat started explaining to us how when her son was younger and then when her grandsons were younger that she would sit them down and she would explain to them how to respond when you get pulled over by the police. And in that moment, another older gentleman who was in our cohort who had adult children stood there with a a blank stare on his face in shock, and he said, I never even thought about having that conversation with my son. It never crossed my mind. And Miss Pat wasn't angry at us. She wasn't wasn't frustrated. She didn't get mad at, at my friend Grant who said this. But we all started to realize that Miss Pat had experienced a world quite different from the world the rest of us had experienced. I'll never forget driving in downtown Nashville with Miss Pat as we were just kind of out on an excursion, a bunch of college or a bunch, a bunch of college students. I mean, we were doctoral students at the time, but a bunch of college students driving around downtown Nashville, getting ready to go out and, and get some food. And she looked over and she said, "That's the window where I got my food as a little girl because I wasn't allowed to go in that restaurant." I'll never forget when she told me how she wasn't allowed to try on her Easter dress at the store because as soon as she tried it on, she would have to buy it because they wouldn't sell it any longer. Miss Pat shared stories with me about what it was like to, to get books from other classrooms from the white kids down the street when she was a, a school-aged child and the different encouraging notes they would leave for her. Miss Pat helped me to start to see that the world I had experienced as a white male was completely different from the world she had experienced. That doesn't mean that my experience was wrong by any stretch of the imagination. It just helped me to see that the other people experience things differently than I do. And sometimes I can just kind of assume that everyone else is having the same experience of the world that I'm having because I'm right there, but that's not really the case. And part of loving differently is recognizing that sometimes we have to get out of our own shoes and we have to start seeing the world from other people's perspectives. Loving differently means that that we have to start trying to figure out and learn stories. To learn the stories of those who are around us because it's the stories that help to make us who we are. It's the stories that help to frame uh, the decisions that we make on a daily basis. You see, there's power in story. It's so easy for us to kind of get caught, especially in our culture today, it's so easy for us to get caught in our own echo chamber and just spend time with only people that are just like us and people that think like us and people that vote like us and people that root for the same teams. And we even listen to the same podcasts and the same music over and over again to where the only voices we're hearing are voices just like us. And when we do that, then we start to think that that's the way everyone in the world sees the world. But there are so many people that we come in contact with, whether it's, it's classmates or whether it's people that we work with, or maybe it's your neighbor, or maybe it's the person that you'll see this afternoon at the store, but they see the world completely differently. And when we start to learn stories, when we take the time to get to know who people are, we understand how they think and how they respond and the different experiences in their lives that shape who they are today, we start to appreciate them a little bit more. And we start to understand why they respond the way they do. And we start to learn how to love differently than everyone else around us. To think about this maybe a little step forward, I I want us to think about this parable of the Good Samaritan. 
It's a parable that, that many of us have heard before. It's a, it's a very famous parable. Even if you're not a church person, uh, this parable shows up. We know about Good Samaritan hospitals and Good Samaritan laws, and we all have a very high view of what a Good Samaritan is. But I want us to, to step back for just a second and try to hear this parable differently. I must confess my own reading of this parable was completely changed after I uh, spent some time with a female Jewish New Testament scholar named Amy Jill Levine who helped me see this parable in a slightly different light. See, Jesus begins our parable by saying, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Right from the very beginning, we realize that this is not a, an innocent question that's being asked. This is not a moment where, where the lawyer is really trying to understand the, the ramifications of the story. He's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to prove to everyone else that's around that this Jesus is not the guru. He's not the teacher. He's not the great person that everyone else thinks he is. This is a trap. We need to understand from the very beginning, this lawyer does not have good intentions. He's trying to trick Jesus. And yet, even though we know that, we all kind of lean in a little bit more when we hear the question. Because it's a question we all desperately want to know, isn't it? What exactly, Jesus, do we need to do to inherit eternal life? Because even though we know it's a trap, we desperately want to know that there's more to the life, that there's more to what's going on than really what we see around us. When we look at the brokenness and we look at the pain and we look at our own lives and we think the stories that we thought were going to happen when we were little haven't exactly happened yet. And some of us have been knocked off the mountain and some of us have been pushed down and we want to think, surely there's something that's better than just this. What exactly, Jesus, do we need to do to inherit a life with meaning and purpose? And so while we know it's a trap, we lean in hoping that Jesus will give us something. But in true Socratic method, Jesus refuses to answer the question and instead turns it around. How do you read the law? You see, Jesus refuses to be trapped into saying that there is just like an A, B, C, that if you just do A, B, C, that you'll automatically inherit eternal life. And so Jesus switches the question back on him and says, how do you read the law, sir? You're the lawyer. You've grown up reading the Old Testament scriptures. What exactly do you think it is? And at this moment, the lawyer says the smartest thing he says in the entire conversation when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That that is what leads to a, a life with purpose and meaning. That is what leads to eternal life. To, to somehow embrace a, a philosophy and a life stance where every single ounce of our being, every moment of our day, every decision that we make is all about how do I love God in this moment? And then to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Not to love our neighbors the way they treat us, not to respond in kind, but to love our neighbors the way we want to be treated. To love our neighbors by giving them the benefit of the doubt because we want the benefit of the doubt. To love our neighbors by being willing to, to inconvenience ourselves when they're in need because when we're in need, we really want other people to inconvenience themselves to help us. 
to, to be the kind of person who goes out of their way to comfort and to, and to lend a helping hand and to put an arm around their shoulder. That when we live that sort of life, we get a life that has meaning and purpose. And this is the mic drop moment in the story. This is the point where the lawyer should have walked away because he had just said the most important thing he was going to say the whole time. But then the lawyer does exactly what we do. The lawyer wants to justify himself. What's the minimum I need to do to get by? I don't like to admit this to my students, but I was often the person who read the syllabus and tried to figure out what exactly do I need to do and how many pages does that paper need to be. And then I'd write to the very minimum, right? They said eight pages was fine, so it's eight, right? They said six was fine, so it's six. I know none of the rest of you ever did that, and I know none of my students ever do that, but, right? We all did that from times. We've had these moments, right, when you're in the, the community and you're in the, like the neighborhood fellowship and they say, we need everyone to donate two hours and so you do your exact two hours and then you just kind of scoot out, right? We understand this idea of what it means to do the bare minimum. And so here is this law you're asking, who is my neighbor? Who are the people I do need to love? Because there are some people I can love there are a lot of people, like, like you know, the people that, that brought us food when we were sick. I, I can love them. That's, I can handle that, right? The, the people that go out of their way to pick up our slack at work when, when we've kind of let something slide, I can love them. But to love the boss that's always getting on my nerves, to, to love the classmate who will never do their part of the group project, to love the neighbor who lets his trash can fall over and the trash falls in, flies into my yard and he doesn't come over and clean it up. To love the guy that cuts me off in traffic that I'll probably never see again. Why do I need to love him? Who exactly is my neighbor? So Jesus begins the parable. A man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. And they beat him, they robbed him, and they stripped him, and they left him half dead. So now here is this man on the side of the road. It's a treacherous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a very dangerous road. Everyone knows you've got to keep your head on a swivel when you're traveling that road because it was known to have robbers and bandits. And this man happened to be traveling down that road alone at the wrong time in the wrong place, and he fell into the hands of robbers. And we're all kind of looking around, and we're starting to figure out, okay, what's going to happen next? Is anyone going to stop to help this man who's stuck on the side of the road? And lo and behold, a priest comes by. One whose very responsibility is to stand in the place of God and to help mediate relationship between the people of Israel and God Almighty and God Almighty and the people of Israel. If there's anyone who's going to stop, it should be this man. And yet, he kind of looks around and he sees that no one's there and he scoots by on the other side and keeps going. Just like those moments when we're driving down the road and we see the person changing their tire on the side of the road and we think, they got this, and we just drive on by. Well, then a Levite comes by. Now, a Levite is, is not necessarily in the same position as the priest. He's not mediating relationship between God and humanity and humanity and God. But the Levite is kind of the chief volunteer in the temple court. So the, the Levite is, has responsibility over the holy things. 
The Levite is, is kind of a special person in Israel's history. He's like the chief volunteer at church, right? And so this Levite is passing by, but he does the exact same thing. And it's at this point when some really wise theologian will try to point out that the priest and the Levite, they stop, and they don't stop, and they walk by on the other side because they're worried about being unclean. And they don't want to go to the temple as unclean because if they're unclean, it will mess up everything. And that sounds really great. You've probably heard that before from some great little theologian. But it's because they don't understand the law that they say things like that. Because the law specifically has stipulations where you stop and you help the poor no matter what. You stop and you help the person in need. That's, that's a stipulation in the law. The priest and the Levite have no excuse for going by saying, oh, I've got to remain ritually pure for my temple worship. They just don't want to stop and help. Because it's a treacherous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And while I don't know this for sure, my guess is in the back of their minds, they're thinking, those robbers may still be out here. This still may be a dangerous situation. And what will happen to me if I stop and put myself in danger to take care of this stranger on the side of the road? What will happen to me? I'll never forget the moment I read MLK talking about this parable. And Dr. King looks at this parable and he says, we've got to start changing the question we ask. You see, the priest and the Levite, they're worried about what will happen to me if I stop to help. And Dr. King changes the question and he says, what will happen to the man on the side of the road if I don't stop to help? So often we're concerned about our own situation and what's happening in our lives and we've got to learn to see the world and to see situations from somebody else's perspective. That's what it means to love differently. That it's not just about me, but it's about somebody else. And what would happen if we look at the situation from their perspective? What will happen to the man on the side of the road if nobody stops to help? Will he die? Will this be the last thing that's ever said in his life? What will happen to the man on the side of the road? Now at this point, because we know the parable, we know exactly what's going to happen next. But see, what we don't realize is that Jesus switches the story up on us. See, Jewish people often would separate themselves into three groups. There were priests, there were Levites, and there were regular Israelites. Priests who were descendants from Aaron, Levites who were descendants from Levi, and then every other descendant of Israel, an Israelite. And so when there was a group of three, they always expected a priest and a Levite, and the very next thing that would happen would be an Israelite man. We do the exact same thing, right? If you're older in the room, think about this. Finish this sentence. Class participation here, right? Mo, Larry, Curly, right? Or for the spiritual people in the room, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? We know threes. We know what to expect, right? And so when they say priest, Levite, what they're expecting is Israelite. But Jesus says, priest, Levite, Samaritan. It's like saying, father, son, Satan. You see, we have this high view of Samaritans because the Samaritan's the hero in the story. But they didn't have a high view of Samaritans. Samaritans were the enemies. Samaritans were evil. They weren't just the half-Jews that were brought in to populate the place after the Jews were taken off into exile. They were the enemy. 
They were second class or maybe third class or maybe fourth class. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They couldn't stand them. They didn't want to be around them. When they traveled from Jerusalem, from, from Judah up to, Jer- up to Galilee, they walked around Samaria. That's how much they hated it. They made an extra day of their journey because they hated Samaria so much. I mean, if you don't believe me, go back one chapter. Jesus is going through Samaria and they refuse to give him hospitality. And James and John say, Jesus, this is horrible. Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them in this very moment? This is a great chance to get rid of them. And luckily, Jesus walks them off the cliff and says, just because they fail to show you hospitality doesn't mean you nuke them. But they felt like they were justified because they hated Samaritans. And Jesus has the audacity to say, a Samaritan was walking by. The enemy, the person you can't stand. And it's the Samaritan who stops to help. It's the Samaritan who takes the time to ask the question, not what will happen to me on the side of the road. Because if anybody's in danger on this road, it's the Samaritan. Instead he asks, what will happen to this man if I don't stop? And the Samaritan loves differently. And the Samaritan gives of his means and he bandages his wounds and he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to an inn and he takes care of him and he says, here's some extra money. Please take care of this man until he's healthy. And when I come back this way, if you spend any more than this, I'll take care of it. It's the Samaritan. And now all of a sudden we're confronted with this question of it's the enemy who comes to our aid. But see, even then, I don't think we quite grasp the parable yet because if the Samaritans are really the enemies, then no Jewish man is ever going to see himself as a Samaritan in the story. You see, we all see ourselves as Samaritans because we want to be the hero of our story. I mean, I know I do. I want to be the hero. And so I find the hero in the story, and that's who I am. That's why I'm always Captain America because he's the hero in the story, right? So we look at this and we read it and we're like, we're the good Samaritan. Who are the poor people on the side of the road that have been beaten up and hurt? But no Jewish man sees themselves as a Samaritan in this story because they hate Samaritans. You see, the man who's listening to this story sees himself as the guy on the side of the road that's been beat and robbed and stripped naked and left for dead. And now all of a sudden, what happens when we're in need and the only one who has stopped to help us? is our enemy. Can we accept help and love from our enemy? And if our enemy is the only one who will stop to help us, then should our enemy really be our enemy? Should our enemy not in fact be our friend? See, when we start thinking about loving differently, We have to start seeing the world from outside our perspective. We're really good in our culture of labeling people and then deciding that because we've put a label on them, we immediately know who they are and everything they believe. So we label people, Republican or Democrat, and we immediately know who they are and we decide whether we like them or hate them based on that. Senior citizen, teenager. We immediately know what they like and what they value and how they respond and we either like them or hate them because of that. 
Hispanic descent, African-American descent, white European descent. And we immediately know who these people are and what they think and how they believe, and we label them that way, and we don't know their stories. And if we want to learn to love differently, we've got to start sitting down and learning stories. We've got to start seeing people not as a label and not as just some sort of thing like this is a Samaritan or this is a Jewish man, but we've got to see them as people made in the very image of God. And who is the person in front of me who is made in the very image of God? And don't they deserve the same love that I expect and I hope for in my own life? We've got to start taking the time to learn stories. To sit down and grab coffee with that coworker that you don't get along with and learn their story. To sit at the table with a classmate who gets on your nerves and learn their story. For the neighbor who lets their trash fall over or lets their leaves blow into their yard and you, they never clean it up to actually invite them over to dinner and become friends. To learn people's stories so we start seeing them differently to where our relationship with them is more important than whatever it is that we disagree about. I saw this happen in my own life. A number of years ago, I had a superior that, that honestly got on my nerves because he was against everything. Didn't matter what it was, he was against it. And that gets a little frustrating when you're working for someone who you come up with a great idea and, all, and they're just like, nope, never done that before, not doing that. It was so frustrating. And then this company came up with this idea of, let's have a mentoring program. And you get to go spend time with different people, and I end up getting to spend time with my best buddy. And so once a week for six months, we had breakfast together at Waffle House. I hate Waffle House. And over six months, I fell in love with this man to where he's one of my heroes today. He still was against everything. It didn't change. But I got to know who he was. And I got to know his story. And I got to know about his family. And I got to know what got him excited and what he was scared about. I got to hear about grandparents and parents and children and grandchildren. And I shared my own stories. And after six months, it was at the point where my relationship with him was more important than anything we could disagree about. We still disagree about a lot of stuff, I'm sure. But I love that man. I learned to love differently by learning his story. And by learning to see that he is one who is made in the very image of God just like me. And he has value and worth. And when we learn to love differently, when we learn to see that perhaps when we're in need, it may be that the only person who will stop to help is our enemy. Then our enemy is no longer our enemy. Our enemy is our friend. And when we can accept that, not only do we learn to love differently, but Jesus says, the parable is yours. Go and do likewise. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he give you peace. We're going to stand and sing a song in just a moment. I have no idea where you are this morning. I have no idea what the Spirit is doing in your life. You may have come needing prayers, and if that's the case, we have uh, some shepherds that will be in a prayer room in the back or even uh, come down front. They'd be glad to pray with you as a community. Or it may be that you want to join Jack and, and take on Christ in baptism, and we're so excited about Jack, and we would be glad to, excel, to celebrate even more this morning. Um, and if that's the case, uh, whatever it is you need, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.